Heather, which you may remember he spoke through Joshua, and he spoke about the presence and the promise and the posture being in those places before God. Um, and it was about the rise and fall of Israel, part one of the rise and fall of Israel. Um, and he ended with Saul being appointed as king. And so Dan is now going to pick up this story. Adam was amazing. He was amazing. Oh, Adam, you are incredible. Let's give Adam a round of applause. Woo! <laughs> and Dan is going to be no less amazing, I'm sure. Dan, can I pray with you? Yeah, of course it is. It's not my house. <laughs> yeah, Father God, we just thank you for this morning, God. Thank you to be able to, to gather and to learn about you and your word and our part in your story. We just invite you, Holy Spirit, to come this morning, God, and speak through Dan, God. Meet us where we're at and help us to learn what you want us to learn in this time, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Sorry to run through the door as we start. Bit of a morning conspiring against me this morning. I went to, uh, I had one of those cold sweat moments. I don't know if you ever travel anywhere. And you're due somewhere at a time. And I'm, uh, there's a word for this. I'm a TIDS optimist. That's an actual word. You can look that up. A TIDS optimist. T-I-D-S optimist. And that means that uh, I always assume the best case scenario when it comes to time. So my wife's the complete opposite. She's a complete time pessimist. I'm sure there's a word for that, but I haven't learned it because I'm not it. Uh, but I always assume the best case scenario. So I'll work out the best time the quickest it's ever taken me to get somewhere and that becomes my that's how long it takes so uh yeah I just had one of those moments this morning cold sweat thinking I was running quite tight on time which I always am so I always live in a slight state of cold sweat and got to pick up uh one of our vans that we used one of our projects and I put the code into the key box a little key box that lives there and it wouldn't open and I tried fiddling around the code I I even said, okay, God, uh, please help, and it wouldn't open. So um, I, I guess he was testing me too this morning. So I had to cycle back across just to pick up keys from the office, come back. And, but anyway, we made it, we made it, we made it. So it's great to be here. Now, none of that is as much of a challenge as what you've presented me this morning. Oh, my goodness. So, the rise and fall of Israel, for well, two things. Firstly, putting me on after Adam Heather. Adam, if you're listening to this, um, you should have gone after me. Uh, secondly, uh, what we're going to look at today, and I'm, listen, I'm not a history teacher. Uh, I'm not a, I, I love the scripture, I love the, uh, the word of God in my life, but, but I'm not um, an academic in that sense. So uh, we're going to have an adventure through this, but we've got kind of 800 and, what was it, 814 years that we're covering today. So slight relief when Sally just said, we've got an hour and a half, uh, but that's still a lot of ground to cover. Uh, so thanks, thanks for that. Um, so the rise and fall of Israel, we're picking up, as was said, uh, uh, and yeah, um, from where... Uh, Saul is, is in place. Is that where Adam left it? Saul's in place. Saul's been uh, appointed kick. Uh, so, 
I'm going to approach this not in a kind of lecturing way. I'm not going to teach you and pull out all the exact historic dates, but I do think there's some treasure in this for us. And so as I've looked at this, I just want to draw out some treasure. And I, I don't know your format of how you normally do this, but I, I just want to lead us to a place at the end where often the life that you find in scripture of whether that be a person's life or a nation's life or a tribe's life there's bits in there that you can find you think hang on what where are the parallels in my life and what was God teaching them what does God need to teach me so that that's where I'm going to take us right we're not going to spend uh, three minutes on each one of those 814 years uh, and try and find our way through it but there we go that that's that's what I'm looking uh, to do today and I'm going to pull out some key key markers in that story. So, uh, and, and something I want to confess to you as well. If you do want to go through this in really good detail, but fast as well, the, the, I highly, highly recommend the Bible Project videos on this stuff. They, they are excellent. And a lot of what I've grabbed here is I went through and watched through some of their videos that they've done around this period. So if you look at the book of Samuel... Uh, the, the Bible, you go onto YouTube, it's all free, free resource, Bible project and stuff. Look at the book of Samuel uh, and Kings and Chronicles. Uh, those are kind of like the three pieces that we're going to cover today. Uh, they managed to cover each one in about eight minutes, uh, which is spectacular, but it's a real sort of whistle-stop tour of what's happening in that moment. Now, these books overlap. So Samuel, Chronicles, uh, Samuel, Kings and Chronicles is a flow. They're telling the same story uh, lots of them, uh, and what we find with they're all written into two bits. So you've got one Samuel, two Samuel. You've got uh, one Kings, two Kings. You've got one Chronicles, two Chronicles. They're all broken into two bits. That's how they appear in our Bible. When we open our Bible, we find them in those two pieces. When you when they, they were written, they weren't written into two bits like that. They were just one giant story that's telling a story to us. And when we uh, the reason they got split into two bits is because the, they're such large stories that the scrolls couldn't handle uh, the, the size of them. So they got put into two segmented bits. But when they were written, they were one story. They were one story being told. Uh, and we've got Samuel, uh, which is the kind of run in to and through uh, well, it's the life of Samuel, but runs into King David and, and through out the other side. We've then got Kings, which kind of picks up a little bit further on, but runs through a huge overlap between that. And then we've got Chronicles. Now, Chronicles, they, they reckon Chronicles was written right at the very end. Uh, and Chronicles is like the massive summary of this whole story. So although in the notes that got sent uh, through to me, which was really helpful, uh, it doesn't cover Chronicles. It, that covers it. And each one of those authors draws out slightly different threads and slightly different uh, different angles on this same huge story that's running from uh, from whatever it was, 1400 BC to 586 BC was the time that we're looking at. So just just by way of a bit of a backdrop of where we're, we're heading today. So I, wanna, I want to actually start even further back. So I want to rewind us even further because it's really important that we get the context of this period of history uh, and... And really, the context of that comes in the whole story of God. When we read the Bible, we're reading stories, we're reading moments, we're reading encounters. But there is one huge story, and it's the story of God that goes right from 
Genesis through to Revelation and beyond. We're encompassed into that story. Obviously, the, the canon of Scripture doesn't encompass us, but we're in that story of God that runs right the way through. When we look at the story of God, what we, we see right back at the beautiful poetic writings that we find right at the beginning, picking up on Genesis, which was picking up on traditional stories of creation. The Israelites picked up on some of those stories around and they, they grabbed those stories and they shaped them and they molded them to explain their story of where, God, where, where humanity started and God's relationship. And right at the very beginning of that poetic piece of writing, we find Father, the Creator, Father God, uh, and his desire to be in partnership with humanity. So we've got this wonderful, wonderful story. Right at the very beginning, God wanted to be a partner. He didn't need to be. God doesn't need us. Can you just say that to yourself? God doesn't need me. So sometimes it's really important to remind ourselves of that. In the culture that we live in, that, that revolves around, everything revolves around I, me, my, it's all me, everything's about me, the whole world revolves around me. God doesn't need us, but God chose to partner with us. Uh, and we find that right at the very beginning, God wanted to partner. God wanted to hold the hand of humanity, to hold the hand of Adam in the garden. And God created it all. Obviously, Adam and Eve didn't create any of it. But God wanted to engage Adam and Eve in partnership hand in hand in that garden, exploring and journeying through the creation together. So right at the very beginning, we've got this wonderful partnership that God sets out uh, for us. But we see right at the very beginning, and we can very quickly spin this back onto our own lives, what we start to see right at the very beginning of this story is that man wanted the partnership, but wanted it on his own terms or her own terms. Right, right back at the very beginning. That's what we immediately grab. Man wanting the partnership. We wanted to hold hands with God, but we wanted it on our own terms. Not on God's terms. And that's what we start to see right at the very beginning. Partnership, but humanity trying to wrestle it into our own terms as uh, we go through. So that then causes damage. That's not how God created it to be. That, that damages that relationship with God, because God's in control, God doesn't need us, God chooses to use us, God knows better than us. God is infinitely more uh, planned and thought through, infinitely more powerful, infinitely more knowing than we are. And we start to pull ourselves away from that partnership when we choose our way, not God's way. When we start to impose our own conditions or our own choices on that partnership it starts to cause massive problems and it and friction comes and it it breaks and it and it goes wrong and i'm sure we can all relate to that in our own st stories within this huge story that we uh, are part of so what god does is god chooses once it starts to go wrong we, and we see in that beautiful book of genesis we see it starting to go wrong and then then in exodus god chooses to kind of start again uh, and he chooses to zoom in on smaller groups of people. So it starts with this pictorial, beautiful picture of Adam and Eve, and it then, he then zooms in on these smaller groups of people, and God starts to renew and start again, and we see this partnership looking to be established. See, 
the grace of God is abundant in the New Test, uh, the Old Testament. We can often think, I want to learn about the grace of God. Let, let's, let's dive into the New Testament. Paul, Paul teaches so heavily on this. I mean, Paul, what we know about Paul, Paul um, was this Jewish extreme activist that took great pleasure, it seems. Maybe that's the wrong word, but, but great um, conviction in persecuting the church. Uh, imprisonment and, and worse at times. Paul, Paul was advocating for this and then we see Paul's life getting f- completely flipped and turned upside down. I was in a school, uh, one of our primary schools recently, uh, this week, Thursday, uh, that we were, we do, we do a lot of work. We do, use this amazing resource by uh, the Bible Society called Open the Books. We go into this school every other week and we do a Bible score, story to the whole school. It's a real privilege. And this week's story was, I think it's Acts 14, was Paul uh, and Barnabas uh, healing the, the cripple. And the Greek crowd, it was in Lystra, the Greek crowd start to worship Paul and Barnabas. They say, this is, you know, Barnabas is like Zeus. He is the, the god of the gods. And, and Paul, I can't remember who they were saying, Paul was like, but Paul was one of the other gods because he's, he's the god that, he was the Greek god that speaks. I can't remember his name that they picked up on. So they say, these guys are like, Gods and Paul and Barnabas say, no, no, we're not. It, we're not gods. We're, we're here on behalf of God, but we're not gods. And they start to throw his party. And then the, the Jews get upset because and it, it's heretical. Uh, but Paul wasn't ever saying that he was a god. Barnabas wasn't ever saying he was a god. And Paul, all of a sudden, you pick up on that story where Paul with Stephen, the first martyr of the church, Paul, uh, Saul as he was then, was involved in that killing and the advocacy of that killing and all of a sudden Paul finds himself with this mob rule going on he's being lynched uh, in this moment and he's being stoned him and Barnabas were stoned and the the story tells us that they got so uh, so damaged they thought they were dead and they got dragged their bodies got dragged outside the city walls and left but we find out in the story that we and we don't know what happened that they were convinced they were dead but but they were alive. Whether that was a resurrection moment, whether that was a supernatural, we, we don't quite know what happens. But Paul then received that and received the, the backlash of it. So when Paul talks about grace, he totally understands it. He's persecuted, he's instigated the killing of Stephen. And all of a sudden, he's completely, the shoe is on the other foot, completely. Paul understands that journey of grace. The amazing songwriter that, that wrote that, that such, I guess, I think it must be one of the most famous hymns, Amazing Grace, right? You hear it everywhere, like it's everywhere, isn't it? Uh, I enjoyed the FA Cup final yesterday. One of the few moments where you hear a hymn sung on British TV that isn't uh, in uh, Songs of Praise or some religious program, Abide With Me. But one of the, the great hymns that's sung is Amazing Grace. And it's, it's people who are involved in the slave trade finding salvation in God and going, how amazing is it that, that God, as a perpetrator, God's love is still for me, as someone who's done so wrong. But right, So it's easy to grab that stuff in the, in the New Testament, but God's grace is at work in the Old Testament. God wanted that partnership, 
regardless of, of humanity's desire to have the relationship on their own terms. God wanted that relationship. And so he keeps coming back to the relationship. He doesn't give up on it. I don't know if you've, got, you've ever had friendships, whether they be at work or in, the, in education or neighbours or wherever it is, where there's people that kind of let you down or, or are rude to you. And, and, and after a while, uh, maybe you're better people than me. But I go, right, I'm done with that. I'm done with it. I, I'm not prepared to put myself in that position again. I, ca- I can't take it. God, God can take it. And this is where we see God, isn't, God is the lead partner. God's capabilities, and, and I know this is so obvious, but I'm someone who at times assumes the lead partner role. Right? Okay, God, I know you're there, and I know you're amazing, I know you're great, but, but leave this one to me, I've got it covered. I don't know if you, I, I'm, I'm, this is, I'm confessing sin to you, right? I, I, I sometimes, and, and I wouldn't even be as courageous as to say it like that, but that's the soundtrack that goes on through my head. You know, we, we've just been in the most incredible situation in our church where we've been, I don't know if I shared this with you when I was last there, but over this last 18 months, we've, we've uh, in effect been given the most incredible building. It's a, a two million pound building that we've been given by someone who isn't a believer, and they've said that uh, we're happy for you to use this for the next 15 years, and they're not charging us any rent to use it. It's a £100,000 a year rent at market rate, over £100,000 if you slap VAT on it, and we're, we're not registered for VAT, so that's a real cost. And they're saying, you can have it. And, and then... So your brain's, my brain's blown because we prayed that God would release a building to us. My brain's then blown because, in my mind, the best way that God could have done that was a deepening relationship with a partnership with one of our schools where we could embed ourselves in the school and look at what our great friends, part of the 24-7 Boiler Room Network, what the guys at Aaron Community Church have done. They've embedded themselves in a school. They've partnered with the school. They've equip the school with the most amazing equipment that the church used, that the school get. That, God, come on, God, that's the best way you could do this right now. But God's got a different plan. And then I'm having a chat with God saying, Father, that's amazing, but we've now got to raise about £600,000 to turn this, this, this part. It is it's walls and a roof. That, that's all it is. And it has a forecourt for four cars. That, honestly, that's all it is. So God, here's my plan of how I think we can raise that £600,000. Here's my thoughts. Here's, here's the best way I think we should do this. And then, see, I'm constantly exerting. There's a fine line. Part of it's a prayer. And part of it, we need to use our brains. God is the God of the common sense. Right? So don't, don't, don't ever forget that. God is the God of the common sense. Because if God created us and God wired our brains together while we were still in the wombs of our mums, we've, we've, been, we've been built, created, knit together by God. And he knows us and we know him. We're built in the image of God. And, and the image doesn't necessarily mean the physical outline of our body, but 
we're created like God. So if common sense and logic is sensible to us, then it is to God too, right? Because he gave it to us. <laughs> so, d- so don't think that something sounds too sensible for it to be God. Now, God won't be um, confined, restricted, put in a box over common sense. So don't, don't swing too far out the other way. But if it's like a pendulum... But, but God is, God is you, you have common sense in your brain, God's sensible. But I'm trying to exert over God common sense. And God goes, no. <laughs> there's some more stuff I need to teach you. I, mean, I haven't heard his voice say this, but as I reflect back at the story, there's some other stuff you've got to learn here. And God provides in the most miraculous ways. One of the ways that he's providing for us with this building, we're about 80, 85% funded now for the building, six months on. But is by someone, again, who's not a believer, saying, we'd like to give you some money towards what you're doing. And I'm talking a large sum, <laughs> large sums, larger than, than I have by a long, long way. Um, and God's teaching me something in that. But what the subtext of what's going on under all that is... I'm trying to exert my preferences and my will on God. I'm trying to become the lead partner when God's the lead partner. Jesus reminds, that, reminds us of that, doesn't he, in the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done. Not, not my will be done. Even, even Jesus didn't pray, my will be done. I'm not suggesting you've ever prayed that. That would be quite dangerous. I don't, wouldn't recommend you voice that to God, the Almighty. But I can think it. If I'm really honest with myself, or I search myself, I can think that stuff. So we're constantly wrestling with God in our brokenness and our fallenness to have this partnership on our own terms. It's a battle, constant battle, constant battle. I have teenage children. I know what it's like to wrestle and exert will and whose terms, you know, that, that, that moment where you're, you're having to lock up and I'm going to do it this way, I'm going to do it that way. No, you're not doing it that way. It's not the family way of doing things. And we, there's that con- it's, it's in my life, it's in my lounge every day, that exerting of will. And it helps me understand God a little bit because there are times where I, um, listen, I'm probably one of the worst parents out there on the planet, but there are times where you kind of think, okay, well, I don't really want it done that way, but I'm going to let that one go. <laughs> I'm going to pick that battle today. Or moments where you think, well, I fancy doing this, but okay, you fancy doing that, let's do that. And, and I think we just get little insights into how God treats us. Uh, there's moments where I'm sure um, God relinquishes to our will and, and our desires and our requests. That's what prayer is all about, right? So we have this partnership. God makes a new partnership when it all goes wrong at the beginning. God makes a new partnership. What we find through the Old Testament, and I am getting to the subject, don't worry, this is just important background. 
I don't know why I'm talking about. I haven't got a lot of time to cover 800 years, and I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going back before you've asked me to even. I'm adding, I'm adding another thousand years to my 800 years here. But we we constantly wrestle in that partnership. We're constantly trying to exert our pressure in that partnership. But God doesn't turn His back on us. God doesn't say, right, that's it. God's a God of grace in the Old Testament as much as the New Testament. And then we see God start to put some healthy things in place in his relationship with humanity. God, uh, Father, puts in place some promises over humanity. And you'll have covered this. Experts like Adam uh, would have picked up on some of this stuff, I'm sure. But just to quickly, again, pick up on the threads of this, which is really important before we start to get into today's stuff, because this, this is the predominant thread that we're going to pick up through this 800 years we're covering today. That God makes a fresh start with people and often then makes a promise afresh to people. A fresh commitment. Now, the, the posh word that we pick up on here in Scripture is a covenant. Not a, not a particularly familiar word for us today, is it? It's not one that's necessary in language unless you're in business or trying to buy a property. or so. It's a quite a legal word, but, but a covenant is a, a promise. But it's not just a, I promise, and a quick shake of hands. There's something far more substantial to the covenant. It's a, it's a lifelong commitment that is made, that is unbreakable. Now, having said that, God knows what we're like. He makes a lifelong covenant commitment that he will never break. With a fool like me, I'm sorry to say it, frail fools like you, knowing that we're going to break it. But he still chooses to do it. God's a God of the grace in the Old Testament, as much as in the New Testament, as much as today. So God puts these covenants in place. And he... It's, it's a promise from God that's unbreakable. God won't break his promises. 600 and something promises in the Bible, so I'm told. I don't know who counted that, but I've been told that. God makes promises, and God doesn't break those promises. And when we're, when we're working with children and young people, one of the most important things we can do is get those promises into our young people, just to shove them in. Uh, like... What, <laughs> This is a horrible metaphor. It's just come into my brain. Uh, you know those, those that that most beautiful. I'm sorry if there's any vegetarians in the room, uh, or, or vegans. Sorry, that that, that that pate that's the most beautiful pate. That foie gras. Excuse my pronunciation. But what they they do is they force feed these geese, don't they? To to fatten them up. To make, I, okay, I'm stopping there. I can sense vegetarians. I can sense them. But that's. That's what we need to be like, not just with children and with young people, but with new believers. We need to get those promises of God down their necks to fatten them up in faith. So when the barren times come, when the trials come, when the tests come, they've got sustenance in the core of who they are to understand. Because the promises of God are the most, uh, they are the foundation of our lives. So in the, in the, in the, we, 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 there's four main covenants that God makes in the Old Testament. Three of these have probably been covered already in your story. So I'm just going to recap on those three covenants. Um, but we're going to pick up on the fourth one, which is very, very prevalent 
in what we're covering today. So the three covenants that will have already come out. The first one, the covenant that God makes with Noah. God makes a covenant with Noah. And God says, I just shorthand this in Genesis 9, if you want to go look at it properly. But God says, never again will I flood the earth like this. Now this is an interesting covenant because God requires nothing of Noah. God doesn't say, never again am I going to flood the earth, but what I want is, is faithfulness from you. God actually doesn't ask, and I think it's the only covenant where nothing's asked back the other way, but this first covenant, nothing is asked of Noah or his sons or his wife or his family. Nothing is asked, but God says, never again will I do this. Never again when humanity causes such destruction, when humanity strays so far from me, never again am I going to hit the master reset button. You know those moments where you've, your technology crashes and the only way to do it is turn it on and off again. You know, those IT uh, fans, uh, IT crowd fans. The, 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 I love that program. Uh, uh, turn it on and off again. Kind of if it crashes, that's just turn it on and off again. Never again is God going to turn it on and off again. Like he did in that moment, picked up in Genesis. That's the first covenant. The second covenant was with Abraham. There's a pattern starting to come here. And God says to Abraham, look, I'm going I'm to unload my blessing upon you. And I'm going to unload that blessing on you in such a way. And it, that blessing is going to rest upon your family. And not just your family right now. Not, not just the wife and kids. But for generation, for generation, for generation. My blessing is going to rest upon you in such a way that it's going to run through generations. I, you're, going to have, you're, you're going to fill this land with, with your offspring, with your children. You, your herds are going to be like no other person's herds. You, you, the blessing is going to rest upon you. And God chooses to bless then humanity through a family. It's kind of interesting dynamic that's going on here. He's going to choose a family to... Bless humanity. And God this time does ask something of Abraham. There's a, there's a other side to this piece, this sort of uh, covenant. But it's a real gentle ask, but a clear ask. And God asks this, he says, you need to trust me. I'm paraphrasing here. You need to trust me and you need to train up your family to do what's right and just trust me and do what's right and just and not just you Abraham but your family and then my blessing my covenant blessing will be upon you one of my favorite churches on the planet is some good friends of ours out in Mumbai in India a wonderful couple called Basil and Kathy D'Souza uh, and they uh, their church is called Covenant Blessings I love that name. When I, when I first heard it, I thought, wow, that's a, that's a theologically robust name. Um, not quite as cool as proximity, for sure. But covenant blessings, man. When, the, when God's covenant is upon you, there's blessing that comes. When God's promise is on you, there's blessing that comes. Now, don't panic. I'm not going down some sort of route of... Uh, warped 
awful whack theology around prosperity, but, but God's lavish nature is upon you. And he gives, and you know what? God's cup overflows. God's giving and blessing to you won't ever run out. And when you walk through the valley, it won't run out. When you're on the mountaintop, it won't run out. And don't ever, I'm going off track here. But this is really important. This is nothing to do with what you've asked me to say today. I, I realized a few years ago, someone really helped me with this, that in my mind, I had I'd completely limited who God was. Because I started to think of God as a, as a human, which isn't wholly wrong. He came as a human, right? So, so don't, that's not the bit that was wholly wrong. But I'd feel bad about asking for God to do things in my life. Because there was always someone worse off than me that I knew. We had it at church last, last Sunday, Sunday before, last Sunday, I don't know, last couple of weeks. Um, we just had one of those divine moments where someone, we just started to pray for the sick. And, and there's four or five really, really sick people in our church at the minute, like life-threatening sick stuff. And one of them, it was his first Sunday that he'd been able to be at church for nine months because he, he's that ill. He can't be around people, infection stuff. It was his first Sunday, and God just moved and did something incredible. So there was people wrestling brain tumors. There was people wrestling bladder cancer. There was uh, a, a young woman who'd just been, a 32-year-old young mum who'd just been diagnosed with breast cancer. There's a guy who's got uh, blood cancer. Uh, who else did we have out the front? Anyway, that'll do. You get select, like these are people with serious life threatening things. And then someone who uh, had, was on the road to recovery from a brain tumor didn't get pulled out. And eventually someone went and grabbed this person and pulled them out the road because the tumor's been dealt with, but the, the implications on their life are still incredibly prevalent. And there's something going on in that of, well, my life's not under threat right now, but those people are. And that was, that was sacrificial. It was beautiful. But it's theologically errant because we start to think, well, God, if you're going to choose someone, uh, it's beautiful. If you're going to choose someone, do something to them because they need it more than me right now. But what we're doing is we are into the territory of heresy. Because we're saying God has, like if you step this back, take this back a few steps, you're basically saying God's got limited resources. God can't, if God's going to do it for someone, do it for those, well God can do it for everybody. Right? He's not limited. God's resources aren't limited in any shape or form. And I had to really rewire my brain a few years ago and still have to work at it that Sometimes I wasn't asking for breakthroughs in prayer because I was concentrating on others, which is, which is good and, and godly. You know, that's intercession rather than our own, um, like, cash point prayers with God. Stick my card in the wall, type my pin in, and money comes out. Okay, what's my balance? Right, okay, God, yeah, I'm good. I can take some money out today. Like, look, we end up in this sort of exchange with God, but God isn't limited. God isn't limited. I don't know how on earth I got onto that. But it's, it's really important. It's a really important thing. Don't ever not pray for a situation for yourself because you think, oh, I'd rather God did that for someone else. 
it's, harsh words. It's heretical. It's it's not it's not of God. <laughs> think about those. Think about that. Don't know how I got onto that, but there we go. I'm, I'm just going to jump back into our covenants. These promises. There we go. They're unlimited. These promises. God's promises are unlimited. They don't ever run out. So we then find that we've got this. We've had Noah's covenant. We've got Abraham's covenant. Genesis appears in a couple of different chapters, Genesis 15 and 17. And then we get a covenant that goes from a family onto a people group. This next covenant, which is over the tribe, the people of Israel. In Exodus 19 to 24, this whole covenant picks up with with Moses. Uh, So we've gone from a covenant with a person to a covenant with a person but it's about a family we've gone with a covenant this next covenant is uh, about a people about a tribe the tribe the people of Israel so it kind of zooms out. you see what you see what's happening here it's gone person to family to tribe these promises of God they are growing and this covenant was about uh, with with God was about obeying laws now I know in our UK society, we don't like laws, right? We, no one likes laws. And one of the things that people regularly say they don't like about Christians is rules and laws, right? I, that's not, I'm not, I don't, I don't need any more rules in my life. I don't need any more laws in my life. It's all about laws. Uh, and that's one of the things that gets thrown at Christians, quite, if you're anything like me. It gets thrown at me quite a lot. But these were... These were laws, and they were rules, but they were guidance from the Creator on how to live best within His plan for your life, which rules that allow you to flourish. So it's very easy to say, I hate this law, I don't like that law. There's been laws all over the media. If your social media feeds are anything like mine in the last couple of days, uh, with, a, with a, a lot of my friends and family who are not believers talking about the abortion laws that have come in in Alabama and Georgia in the States. It's all over my social media feed. Um, and that's a red herring that we won't discuss. We'll talk about that over lunch if you fancy it. Uh, but we won't go into that now. But, but, but laws can be seen as bad things that get imposed. Do you know what? I'm grateful that we have law. Imagine the chaos and the carnage our country would be in without law and without statute. And how unprotected and how, I guess, uncivilized we'd be if there was no law. So laws aren't bad things. And the law that Jesus, uh, the Father put through Moses onto the people here was for their flourishing. If you ever go and buy a plant or a tree just looking out the window onto the beautiful scenery here from a garden center or somewhere like that, you need to look at what it says about where it needs to be planted how often it needs to be watered? Does it need anything else? Does it need like what space does it need around it? <laughs> Don't plant it too. They're they're helpful guides, right? So so those things can flourish. I've just put tomato plants in the garden in our back garden. If you plant them too close together, they won't flourish. They won't flourish. So God brings this new covenant to allow people to flourish and to grow and to. Uh, live in a way that he saw in the garden that he wanted people to live. That's what the laws were there. 
rags to riches, shepherd to, to, you know, rising up, lead the army. Every time he went into battle, he was victorious. And we see Saul starting to get all insecure about this new, new kid on the block. And then we see David uh, anointed as king by, by, by Samuel. And we find in this new king, here we are. How long has it taken me to get to the start of the story? Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> it's, we see in this new king something different. In Acts, it describes David as a man after God's heart. I don't think anyone else is described that way. What a beautiful description, isn't it? A man after God's, man after my own heart. He will do everything I want, Acts 13. So uh, David's anointed, age 16, by Samuel. He defeats Goliath. We won't go into any of these stories. Uh, we see him fleeing from his life as Saul tries to kill him on multiple occasions over a number of years. And then we see him having the opportunity to kill Saul and refusing to kill Saul uh, and get drawn into that. We see him then at the age of 30 made appointed king over Judah. At the age of 30, a king. Our next king's going to be in his 70s possibly, like even older, right? This is a young Young king coming into place. And then David unifies the tribes under one kingdom. We'll pick up on this a little, little bit later over all of Israel. He's appointed king at the age of 37. So when these, uh, Israel splits into two bits, uh, he brings it all back together, the, two, the 12 tribes back together. And at the age of 37, he is the king. And he's the king the people wanted. Now what we mustn't forget, David, a man after God's own heart, Oh my goodness, did he make some mistakes. But one of the things I love of David is that he was prepared to own his mistakes and understood that those mistakes meant he had to live in some consequences. Didn't kind of, he knew he messed up, but he kind of took it on the chin. Whereas with some of the other kings, they kind of mess up and they blame it on everyone else and push all the consequences of it all away but David would take it on the chin and then we step into this fourth covenant of the Old Testament and this is around David King David so Israel becomes a unified nation again we'll, we'll pick up on that in a little bit more detail in a bit and God makes this covenant once again around the laws and the rules because what's gone wrong is when people take their eyes off of God and put their eyes on the neighbours. We want a king because they've got a king. That's kind of where it goes wrong. Those are the moments where it goes horribly wrong. But what God then promises is this. He says, one day there will be a king that comes in your line, David, that will be the king that this nation is looking for. And not just the king that this nation is looking for, the king that creation is looking for. The king of kings, uh, uh, Jesus, the Messiah, will come. He makes that covenant over David's life. A king will come in your line, of your line, your throne, David, a king will come. This fourth covenant gets made. So, there's the fourth covenant. And that fourth covenant, someone... I read, described it as the eternal dynasty covenant. This was kind of the moment where God's covenants get fully eternal. 
because it, it starts to point towards the Messiah, it starts to point towards the coming Christ in this line of kings from the tribe of Judah. So in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, which is kind of a large chunk of what we've got to, we're dealing with today, uh, the guys at the Bible Project, they describe it like this, and you, you'll see it if you read the, watch their videos. They describe it, that 1 and 2 Kings, there's like these five movements that happen. There's like these five pieces to one and, uh, 1 and 2 Kings. Remember, they're one book. We call them 1 and 2 Kings. It's just the kings. So there's five pieces in those books and movements that happen. They, they use the phrase movements. And the first one, uh, so this is now post-David, post-David's covenant, is with Solomon's reign. So 1 Kings uh, chapters 1 to 11 is all around Solomon's reign and who he was. And then uh, Solomon, like his father David, re- re- remained pretty faithful to the covenant, the covenants of old and the covenants of new. And Solomon then asked for wisdom, great thing to ask, you know, pray for yourself one thing a day, pray that prayer that Solomon prayed, God give me insight and wisdom. There's one thing you pray for yourself each day, do that. Someone advised me that years ago and it's just been the most amazing gift, uh, that, 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 that concept and God moving within that concept. So Solomon then com- uh, completes the building of the temple, the rebuilding of the temple uh, and uh, that, that, that vision is all encompassed. God's blessing sits upon them. But then Solomon starts to drift. Solomon starts to look at the neighbours again. Starts to peek over the fence to have a little bit of a look what's going on around him. When Solomon peeks over the fence, one of the things that he quickly discovers is some beautiful women over the fence. And uh, j- just like his father... Let's not forget David with Bathsheba on the, on the roof terrace. You know, the same problem. Solomon starts to look over the fence. Now Solomon starts to marry these wives, so I guess a slight improvement on what his dad did, but starts to marry these wives from these other tribes. And he starts to slowly drift away from the covenant. Because some of these, other, uh, these women, these wives, were from kings of other nations daughters of kings from other nations and slowly but straight away again the covenant starts to get broken because practices start to come in other gods start to surface and 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 focus around other things other than god father god their their eyes get taken off and these wives start to influence solomon they adopt other gods they worship other gods but in the midst of that, huge wealth is built up. One of the things we know about Solomon is he was an incredibly powerful and wealthy man. But by the end of Solomon's life, the Bible Project put it this way. I found it really helpful. As I say, I, I, I keep giving tributes to them. A lot of this is they've provoked my thinking, and some of this is directly their stuff. So please do look at it. Uh, they say Solomon, rather than resembling uh, at the end of his reign, rather than resembling a king, he more resembled a pharaoh more resembled a pharaoh than a king. And we know the story only a few generations before of, of pharaohs and how they ruled. So that's like the first movement that we find in kings. The second movement is Israel splits into two bits. Now, I've, I've referred to this already this morning. It splits into two bits. There's a division that comes. Uh, some move into a northern region. Some move into a southern region. So that, those are the names. The kingdoms get given. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom 
uh, splits right down the middle. Some of the tribes go in one direction, some go in another. Uh, and the southern tribes set up their, their camp, their capital uh, is in uh, Judah. The tribe of Judah set up their capital in Jerusalem. And then the northern tribes head to the north and they set up in Samaria, in that region. Now, all of a sudden, you start to see the heritage of a story like the Good Samaritan. Okay, this, there's a deep-seated division between the tribes that David manages to reunify. But there's, there's something there that you see in that powerful story that Jesus tells, that wonderful illustration. So they're in the, in the, uh, the Samarian area. And each kingdom over this next period, this next movement within that's captured in Kings and in uh, Chronicles. There's 20 kings in both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Now, the northern kingdom, the way it's recorded in Kings and in uh, Chronicles, the northern kingdom have 20 kings, and not one of those kings was a good king. Not one. So 20 shocking kings that worshipped other gods and uh, with this Jewish heritage, but, but kind of drifted away and did terrible and abhorrent things even to their own people. No, no good kings, 20 bad kings. And in the southern, they fared a little better. The southern kingdom of Judah, they fared a little better. They had 20 kings, as I said, and the scripture records that eight of them were good kings. So it's still kind of not, I mean, that would still be what, the equivalent to an E grade, wouldn't it? Or not their numbers now, aren't they? Who knows what number that is, but it isn't going to be nines at the top. It's going to be like a three, a two, something like that. You know, it's, it's not, a, not a good mark, but a load better than a zero. That's the, the second movement is just the plotting of these kings and who they are and the kingdoms that kind of follow them and uh, father passing to son and, and, and so on down, down the line. The third movement, as the Bible Project puts it, is in uh, chapters 17, so at the end of 1 Kings, and this runs into 2 Kings. Remember this false division that comes in the middle up to chapter 8 in 2 Kings. And this is where the kings start to get their ears chewed by the prophets. The prophets start to come to the fore of going, hang on, we covenanted with God. And in that covenant, we said that we wouldn't have any other gods. What are you doing? And you see these crazy prophets, and, and some of them in the north, I think in the north, from memory, in the northern kingdom, uh, you get Elijah and Elisha uh, in, in the northern kingdom in Samaria. And they're, they're taking on Ahab uh, and Jezebel. And you, you, you can go and see the, the provocate and those, those men risking their lives. To say, hang on, we've made a promise. We're not, live, we're not going to flourish because we've stepped out of that relationship, out of that promise with God. We're never going to flourish. And so we see this push and pull of the prophets trying to pull the kings back to where the king should be. The prophets in this role of, of just trying to almost pull them back into the right position, into the right frame, into the right place. With varied success. And what tends to happen through this season is the prophets speak and the people go, ah, sorry. Or occasionally the kings go, ah, we're really sorry about that. And they kind of get themselves back into front and centre. They're back into the right position. And then within a few years, they start to drift off out again. And then a prophet raises up and goes, hang on, we've covenanted. This is so you just kind of got this through this next movement. We just got this cycle of a wrestling between the prophets and the kings. The prophets trying to speak on God's behalf. These weren't 
Um, these weren't prophets in the sense of people that would foretell the future uh, as such, although they did speak to the future and what would come, but they were, they were like guard dogs for the covenant. Like they were like these dogs on chains that would patrol the, the grounds, uh, picture language here, of, of the kingdom, and, and they'd be like trying to chase these other things out and, and, and protect what God had promised, this covenant that God had put in place. Uh, there's loads of there's, there's loads of prophets, and they're all in operation through this period. So, uh, Amos and uh, Elijah and Elisha, we've mentioned uh, um, Jeremiah, the, all the all the prophets, the minor. This is their season. This this little bit that we're in now, uh, and you see uh, it tracked through these stories in uh, Kings and in Chronicles. If you want to go more, zoom in on what the prophets were doing, then you see the books that really pull us into what they were speaking to at that time. And then the fourth movement is this, uh, from uh, 2 Kings 9.17, is the road to exile. Israel eventually walked themselves into another desert. they just come out of a desert. They wanted a king. They had a new covenant. God, a gracious father, had given them a new covenant, and they walked themselves back into a desert. They weren't flourishing because they weren't keeping their eyes fixed on God. They were, they, there, was all the, there was no life around them. It was just piles of sand, metaphorically, around them. And they end up in Babylon They were, uh, um, and suppressed. You see people like Daniel living, uh, the prophet Daniel living in this time uh, in Babylon, in, in exile, with the whole nation in exile, enslaved yet again. And you see the mess that's come of it. Yeah, and, and this, the last piece, uh, chapters 18 to 25, it talks through the, the finishing demise and the exile that come. So what can we learn from all of this? What does it mean to us today? I mean, that's, that's history, right? That's, that's millennia ago. It's not even recently. Like, uh, so far ago. What does it mean to us today? Because God's word is alive and active we're reminded it's sharper than it's like a double-edged sword it's pretty sharp it's pretty tasty it can get where it needs to so what does it need to divide in us today what does it need to separate in us today because the story of Israel can be a real parallel I know it is for to my life I don't know if you've ever thought about it in that way but there's parallels there when I was 18, 19, I was one of these people that came to faith over a couple of years. God covenanted with me. He, he'd done the deal in Christ on the cross and the, resur- the resurrection ascended Christ, but God stepped into a partnership with me. Yet at least 59 times a week, I want that partnership on my own terms. And I'm trying to wrestle it back from God. I'm trying to take the lead role from Father. See, this period of the Bible, uh, and this is where I want to land it. This period of the Bible does two things. And it it pulls us backwards and it points us forwards. So it it kind of pulls us back and it points us forward. It projects us forward. You could say it projects us forward. It's pulling us back to these four covenants, three of which I've spoken on and shouldn't have done. I apologize. 
but the, this backdrop, it pulls us back to covenant. God, Father, has graciously struck a deal with us. He's made us partners in the business of creation. Rob's in business here. I'm sure there's other of you in business. You don't give away a slice of your business for nothing, right? That's, That's crazy. But in effect, in a very crude way, I might get struck by a bolt of lightning any second. But in a very crude way, that's what God does. He gives partnership. He doesn't need to, but he gives it away. On some very generous terms, to stick with the business metaphor. <laughs> like this wasn't, this wasn't like humanity walking into the dragon's den. I'll give you 20% for a £100,000 investment and the dragon's tussling and, you know, there's this pull push. Is this going to be a good deal? Who's, who's won in this deal? Which dragon are they going to go with? No. These were the most incredible terms. You can have it all for nothing. Just live in a way that I designed you to live so you can flourish. And then we can have the most wonderful partnership. We can walk through the garden hand in hand as God intended it to be. Everything for nothing. Just live the way I I created you to live. Every so often, like when your kids, my kids are a bit older now, but when they're little and you have to walk along the street because there's a road there and you hold their hand. They don't want to hold your hand. That thing where they're just trying to shake your hand off of their hand and you're, you're kind of having to grip tighter and tighter and then you start to see the hand go red and you think, oh my goodness, they cut off circulation. They're trying to pull away and you're trying to hold on to them. And this is on a cosmic creation level. This is what we do with God all the time. He's holding a hand because he wants to hold a hand uh, uh, but unlike m- me and my parenting, because I'm, I'm fearful of main roads and, and other crises that can happen, I, I, I won't let go, and I'm stronger, and I, I will hold on to. Now, in some ways, God holds on to us, and he's done that through Christ, not by hurting us or, or restricting us. He's done that through Christ, the most incredible gift. So we're called backwards to these covenants. God calls us back to the original plan set out in Genesis, re-established with Abraham, re-re-established with the tribe of Israel, with Moses, re-re-re-established with David, re-established the new covenant with Christ in the New Testament. Like you just, God, God's just kind and gracious to us, but he calls us back to that. But he, he kind of projects us forwards as well. So the readers and the writers of this, when you read through, the, through Kings and Chronicles and bits of Samuel, you'll see the writers are very clearly talking for, as to what's to come. This, this thread of this Davidic line. So you get these lists of genealogy, uh, lists, family lists, and they keep throwing it forward. They keep keep going, like lift your eyes, lift your eyes, look forward. Look what's coming. And it's it's Christ. It's the Messiah in the line of David. So we're being called backwards, and we're being projected forwards. 
call back into promise and remembering the covenant, remembering what he's done for us and called forward in hope into what's to come. Christ has been, he will come again. Eternity awaits for those of us who love the Lord. So here's where I think the teaching is for us in that stuff. Let's be people that remember the promise. Remember the covenant. Remember what's, and it's a complete finished covenant now in Christ, the new covenant. It's, it's, it's all done. It's all finished. Nothing more needs adding. Nothing needs adjusting. Nothing needs tinkering with. God has done the, the finished, or you may have hear theologians talk about the finished works of Christ. The finished, it's complete. Nothing needs adding. It's done. Absolutely complete. But we have a hope in the future. And we, that hope has a name, and the name of that hope is Jesus. It's not just, oh, I hope the weather's better tomorrow. <laughs> Whatever you might hope for. I hope I get promoted in the next year at work, or I hope I get good results in my A-levels, or whatever it might be. The hope has a name. The hope is Jesus, and that hope is an unfailing hope. It's not a hope that kind of requires you to squeeze your eyes shut and try and somehow manipulate every fibre in your being to sort of somehow call it into place. This is a hope that is certain, and it's in Christ. And Christ walks with us in everything. So Christ walks, the hope the hope of God is just as alive uh, in David, Anthony, Chloe, Sam, Adam. The five people that stood out who've got life-threatening conditions in our church right now. The hope of God is absolutely glowing over them. Absolutely glowing over them. They are like... The ready break man. Some of you won't be old enough to remember that. Sorry about that. Not one for the kids. Uh, but like, is it, they're, they're luminescent with the hope of God if they can get hold of it. And we don't know what that hope will transpire like for each one of those. But, but what, it won't be beaten. That hope won't be defeated. That hope uh, cannot be suppressed. That hope cannot be boxed up. That hope is there. Uh, and... One of, one of the ways uh, Jesus is described, he's described as a lamb, but he's also described as a lion. And he's also described, going back into this story, into today's story, as the lion of Judah. So that, that, that lineage that we've just talked about through David, David, the tribe of Judah, he's the lion of Judah. Now that lion is not safe, I think it was, was it, um, what's his name, famous author? C.S. Lewis, yeah, that, yeah, thank you, so more... Um, literature geeks in the room than me uh, I only ever managed to read Christian books I'm that sad and biographies sports biographies and Christian books <laughs> my wife reads all the time she loves reading she just churns books through she says to me why do you only ever read serious books I, I don't enjoy it so if I'm going to do it I want to grow and I want to learn something uh, my junk bit is a few sort of sporting icons biographies uh, but Man, I've totally lost the thread of why I was talking about that. But the lion, thank you, Charles. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, thank you, thank you. The, the lion is roaring in hope. The lion's roaring in hope. And I don't know if you've ever seen a lion roar. I, 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 I don't know if I have, but even when you watch it on television, there's something profound and awe inspiring about the 
this noise that comes out, this animal. It's something profound. And, and, and if that's just a lion, the noise that comes out of heaven, out of Christ, when he roars his hope over situations, uh, it would shake the earth, right? Uh, when, when, when Christ finally died on the cross, the earth shook. So when his hope roars and bellows out, man, is this earth going oh, to probably destroy the earth. Uh, but the power that's in it. So here's where we are today. I want us to, with this section of the scripture that, that we've worked through here, let's remember the promises, let's remember the covenants. Let's remember who issues those covenants. It's God, not us. He initiates and issues. Let's remember the new covenant that we're now in under Christ, jumping forward into someone else's talk in several weeks' time. Let's remember the new covenant that's in place. But let's also remember the hope. So we're pulled backwards to covenant and promise and we're projected forward into hope, into the Messiah that is to come. Now he's come, we know that, but he will come again. And his hope reigns and rules supreme. Can I pray for us? Is that all right? Um, I just really think the um, the picture that Dan had about us limiting God um, and that the person who didn't come forward for prayer because they saw the need being greater in others, um, I think that was really, um, I think that really resonated in the room here. And I think um, it, it's something that I've... I've I've worked through at different times and probably been reminded of it again, that the limiting of God. Um, when you've been in a situation for a while and um, you start to retreat, your hope retreats, I think. And uh, I just want to kind of poke a stick at us again, maybe for, you know, if you think of the what promises God's given to us as a community in terms of, planting six or seven communities in our town and people being able to walk to a prayer room. I just want to poke a stick at that and not retreat um, from those things. Um, then there's personal things in our lives where you believe God's given you a promise for your family, for your health um, or for your future, you know, to poke a stick at that again today and not to limit, limit that. Um, I think even the word that God's given to some of us in terms of the nations, um, the nations to go um, to other places that, believe it or not, not Stanford. <laughs> we love Stanford, and we don't let anyone out once they come in. <laughs> so, you know, we, we kind of, we really invest in this small place, but God's called us to the nations as well. And, you know, just of that sent um, thing that God's really encouraged us in, I just want, you know, to just push that and not be limiting again. Um, I, I think, Phil, I, I really felt something for you in that, in just the limit, don't be limiting um, in terms of what God's spoken over to you in terms of um, what God's always said to me about Phil that um, there's a bigger stage for him. And uh, so I just, you know, just want to encourage you in that as well. Just just some of those things. So if we can, if you pray of us, but if we can just have a moment before you pray, just yeah. just to dig in um, and just consider some of those things and maybe share um, with someone near you or before you go home, just one thing that God encouraged you in 
So where are you limiting? Where are you going? Yeah, but God, once you've dealt with that, because that's a really big problem, <laughs> then if you've got anything spare, I'll have it. You know, but, or once you've built um, Chichester, if you've got any spare, we'd like a boiler room to grow here too. You know, <laughs> let's not let's, let's just see where our limits are and just push them again. Yeah. Why, why don't you do that then? Uh, just twos or threes or whatever's comfortable around you, just pick up on the threads of today. But uh, that's brilliant, Sally. It, uh, just if there's something that's limiting you, why don't you just confess that? Be- because it needs confession because it's errant. It's errant thinking. It really, I, I know that, that might sound a bit heavy and, and, and that's why earlier... I did use a very big and pretty nasty word called heresy. It, it's 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 heretical. Th- it's not godly thinking, and so therefore it needs turning from. It needs you know that. Okay, God, that you know repentance. The literal meaning of that is to turn and and to face a new direction. And, and for us, that's facing God. So why don't you be bold and courageous? And if there's anything in that that you need to confess, just why don't we just deal with it now? Deal with it today. And then we uh, see where God goes. And then I'd, I'd love to pray for you guys for, for Stanford as well. Brilliant. Let's just take, I don't know, uh, three or four minutes just to chat. Make sure everyone, if you're in a group of three, make sure everyone has a chance to say something.
Because it keeps keeps it healthy and all that. So it's kinda like you know, it takes energy as well. Yeah. Yeah. I get what you mean.
for uh, an amoeba to listen to the peregrine and how troubled it is that it's been dumped so close to some part of their life that it has grave uh, implications. So it talks uh, a little bit more in detail later in the style of talk about the Thank mm-hmm. you. 